from inside Michelle Pfeiffer's hot pants in Greece too. It's the IGN Digiguys. So take off your thinking caps and please welcome two strangers on a train, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. You know, being inside Michelle Pfeiffer's hot pants in Greece too. And by the way, that's hopefully our last vintage opening that we've returned to. We're going to get our new uh, intros recorded. But I was going to say, uh, the uh, being inside Michelle Pfeiffer's hot pants in Greece too, not a bad place to be. You know, I disagree because I think Olivia Newton-John in the original Greece, she was the uh, she was the one. I, this isn't an either, she was the one that I wanted. This isn't an either-or proposition. I, I cannot have both. In fact, I cannot have either. Yeah, well, but that being said, I would go for the. Uh, O-N-J. Is anything going on right now? Seriously. Well, we We have a lot of movies to watch before we vote uh, as the LA Film Critics Association members that we are. It's oppressive. It's like I'm doing nothing but just sitting in screening rooms and watching TV, which is all I do anyway. But for some reason, I just feel more pressure at this time of year. Well, Wade... Don't you? Don't you feel pressured? I do. I do. And you know what? There's a... It's getting getting to the point where... I'm starting to I'm starting to be uh, judiciously choosing the films I want. It's like, well, of course. like I, I I didn't see Jay Edgar. I did not see it because yeah, nobody no liked to. it. There's no reason to. What's the point? I have I, I there's another three films I could watch that night at home, which I might actually vote for. There you for. go. There you go. So I'm not going to see Jedgar. No. Uh, and but the screen the screenings are uh, coming in. In fact, wait, I have a, a FedEx here. Yeah. Uh, I was not here to pick I it up. I hate it when they do this. Well, the thing is that uh, with these screeners, when they start sending it to your home, the smaller distributors will just send it, mail it, and just, it's on your doorstep. But the studios uh, will tend to send it via FedEx, and you've got to be there to sign for it. You can't just sign because they're the afraid because they're afraid that uh, that film pirates are lurking outside the addresses of all film critics, and that if someone delivers a FedEx without signing for it and leaves it on the doorstep. That that pirate will immediately snatch it, run home, upload it to Indonesia, and before you know it, it'll be all over the world. When actually the reason it was all over the world was because it was lifted from a post house. Usually. But you know how they are. They're paranoid. It is bizarre. All right, let's talk about movies and DVDs uh, movies. and things. Well, Wade, um, I don't know why we're starting with this, but we're starting with Assassin's Creed lineage. You know why we're starting with that? Now, this is an Get it out of the way. <laughs> oh, wow. It's the bitter Wade. I like it. <laughs> This is a strange uh, little creation because this is a feature-length movie that is a prequel to a video game. It's just unbelievable. It I, is unbelievable. But you amazing. know what? Uh, Call, of, uh, Call of Duty uh, 3, 1297. War, Warriors doing something. It made like $300 million. I know. Now again, that's sixty bucks a pop. It's, yeah. it's like it's sixty bucks for yeah. one of these, uh, of, you know, vid- these video games. Yeah. It made like three hundred million dollars. Yeah. In the first weekend, that it was, it's amazing. It's it's just amazing. The, that's a loyal, devoted following. And if you let's let's whittle that down to a movie opening, okay? If if those things cost sixty bucks a pop, your average movie ticket is is now what about seven? Yes. Okay. Well, that's a thirty million dollar opening for a movie. That if you're just going on on tickets sold, that's a thirty million dollar opening. That's except these people are shelling out sixty bucks for a game as opposed to you know seven eight nine bucks a movie. But I think is the t- average ticket price is it is it is seven eight? I'm sure. Notwithstanding the twelve dollars that we pay in big cities. No, that 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 sounds about right. Yeah. But here's the thing though: you have to understand is that with a video game. You you really only buy it once. Like video games don't have True. any value. Yeah. Three, you know, six months after a video game comes out, yeah. it's over. Nobody's renting John Madden 2008. True. Once a video game comes out, you've got to get your pop there because no one's going to go buy yeah. it a year after it's made. So as opposed to a movie where maybe you'll, you'll see it on the screen, maybe you'll rent it in Redbox, maybe you know, your, 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 uh, your cable bill is partially going to the, to the funding of buying sure. those movies. So I understand that with film, there's much, more, uh, there's much longer tail. Whereas the video games is a very short tale, so <laughs> longer tale. He said tale. So the fact that it costs sixty bucks, I totally get that. But anyway, uh, Assassin's uh, uh, Creed lineage. This is a, a film. You know, it looks great. Is it any good? Of course not. But it looks good, and if people love the video game, they will totally go for this uh, this crazy movie. Uh, it's on Blu-ray, so it looks good. Uh, you know, we got another Blu-ray here. I uh, this movie unfortunately has just hit at the wrong time. This trend is over. Griff the Invisible. Uh, went straight to video, straight to DVD, straight to Blu-ray. We have a Blu-ray right here. This is from Vivendi. stars this guy, Ryan Quantin, who's on True Blood, who I guess has some kind of a small following. 
Anyway, this is one of those average person turned superhero movies. Uh, it kind of sits there somewhere between like like Defendor and uh, Super. Well, yeah, kind of like between Defendor and Super on the one hand, and um, the uh, the other one on the other, the Nick Cage thing with uh, Chloe. Moretz, Kick-Ass. Oh, well, Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass. Oh, I love Kick-Ass. I love Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass is great. But it's kind of somewhere between that. And it's it's okay, but it's like, I don't know, it's it's not nearly as good as Kick-Ass. Uh, Kick-Ass is just phenomenal. You know, basically he plays a guy who um, has a, a uh, an alternate uh, identity at night. He's a nighttime kind of superhero. And uh, there's a girl... And there's the jeopardy of his uh, I like the identity. Girl. I and... like the girl part of it. I, I thought the girl thing was cute. It's not a great superhero movie, but no. it's actually an okay, kind of decently cute little it's okay. riff on the it's superhero okay. thing. It's the kind of movie, really, that should go straight to DVD and Blu-ray. And, and, and I don't have a problem with that. I mean, if they had tried to release this thing theatrically, I think it would have been a mistake. But it's fine. He has a following on TV, and they'll, they'll find out about this. And, he's you know, Australian. Sure. The, 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 the guy, he's Australian. People love Australians. Yeah, they're all, the, all the hunky men are Australian. Because they talk funny. But, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a sweet film. It's, it's a surprise. It's not great, but it's kind of sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We also have a film here called The Tree, which I loved, by the way. This is directed by Julie Berticelli. It, is, it was the closing night film at the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, Julie Berticelli made a remarkable film. She's French, but she made a film in, uh, in Australia, which is a really fascinating movie because we, last week talked about that, horror, that dreadful thing with uh, Jenna Fisher. And this is basically kind of the same plot. It's about a woman whose husband dies unexpectedly and how she copes with that. The difference is that Jenna Fisher thing is totally pedestrian, unremarkable, tries to be funny, not the least bit funny, and she's miscast. In this one, Charlotte Gainsbourg plays the woman, and uh, it's all set in the Australian outback, and it's kind of about how this tree on the property begins to grow, and uh, the kids believe that the tree is a manifestation of their father. And it really has this cool kind of magical realist, surreal... uh, kind of sensibility to it. I think it's a beautifully made film. It feels uh, really cool and fresh, and it got no traction at the box office. But you got to check it out. It's really a, a beautifully acted, very kind of pastoral and poetic film. Really good. I, uh, I can't uh, recommend this highly enough. And uh, if you were a fan of uh, Since Otar Left, well, that was the last film directed by Julie Berticelli. So she's a, she's a really good director. I just want to see her get a, get a pop in her career because she's so talented. Wade, you know what film isn't very good? Um, I'm going to say Plan 9 from Outer Space. I'd rather watch that than rewatch Larry Crown. Would you really? Yes, I would. Gosh, Tom Hanks, it's been years since he did uh, that thing you do, and he he thought he was a good director. You know know, know what the problem is? This is what happens when a really, really rich, out-of-touch guy tries to make a movie about people who are unemployed and hurting. I just think that he just... This thing, which... uh, just to tell you what it's about. Larry Crown, played by Hanks, he's this blue-collar guy. He loses his job, so he has to go back to community college to learn a new trade. He winds up with a crush on his teacher, played by Julie Roberts, the best thing about the movie. And what I just really, really didn't like about this film, and I, I know I'm not in the minority, it is just it is just bland, and it is unrealistic. And, and so, You know, because this would have been like a number one hit opening film in 1989. Yes, I mean seriously, Doing like Tom, the Pretty Women era. Or something oh my like that. gosh, Tom Hanks directing himself and Julia Roberts in a comedy, and it's a cute thing, and it's a funny, and it's a whole deal. It's how how much are the prob of the problems in this film? Would you chalk up to the co-writer? Well, Nia Vardalos is the one you, who wrote. You said uh, her name. You spoke the she, name that one must not speak. <laughs> she wrote uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and has kind of really crapped out ever since. But uh, this one, you know what? It's just it's that cutesy, hollow. Just coy and sickly sweet dialogue in yeah. a story that that really should be resonating with 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 people who are unemployed and people who can see what it's like to be unemployed. I, I just don't understand. It's just it, the the thing with the movie that makes me the angriest is that it's totally out of touch. Yeah, it thinks it's telling some timely story like you know Up in the Air or, or I, I would even argue Take Shelter, which is about anxiety and and being unemployed and having problems with your family and you can't provide. This movie is just completely out of touch. It's just a total misfire, and it's very disappointing because I love that thing you do. It's a great movie. You know, um, I'm not sure why this movie got 
really so little attention. Um, Magnolia just kind of, they really don't release their films very well. Uh, we got a Blu-ray here for a movie called Main Street with a terrific cast and, uh, you know, directed by John Doyle, who's a very competent director. And here's the thing. Forget about John Doyle. Here's the cast and here's the screenwriter. You ready for this, Mark? If somebody said to you, I got a movie with Colin Firth, Ellen Burstyn, Patricia Clarkson, Amber Tamblyn, and Orlando Bloom, and I got a script... By Horton Foot, wouldn't you say? Sign me up. Let's Hort- release that sucker. Horton, here's a foot. I mean, but seriously, I mean, Horton Foot is a great American writer uh, who has since passed away. Yeah, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's nobody. There is obviously from a mainstream level, there's nobody sellable there. So you've got to hope that uh, some smaller company sees sees it's some so value in it. The thing is that with a movie like this, it's not going to win awards, and it's not going to make a lot of money. So where does it go? What's its niche? Well, that's the thing. You've got to know how to market this. You have to know the audience, and you've got to know how to reach them. And clearly Magnolia didn't necessarily know. Um, too bad, you know? I mean, it's really unfortunate. And Horton Foote really goes way back. I mean, he, he did the, the screenplay for To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, you know, and, and Tender Mercies. And he's, I mean, he's been around forever. Um, not anymore, uh, but... Trip to Bountiful? Yeah. Trip to Bountiful? Yeah. Anyway, this is basically set in a North Carolina town, and it's, it's uh, one of those cool little kind of quasi-messianic American small-town pieces about how something almost magical changes the lives of everyone in the town. And uh, I think it's lovely. You know, it's very, uh, it's very, it's almost quaint, but it's moving and it's got great performances and all these people there. I mean, terrific actors, Patricia, Patricia Clarkson, Colin Firth and Ellen Burstyn alone. That's great. Come on, give me a break. Uh, you know what? It's one of those little, it's one of those little movies that we will consider one of our, our, uh, I don't know, what would you say? One of our like underground picks? I get, yeah, absolutely. Check it out. <laughs> Why not? Uh, Wade, look. Yes. Uh, do you realize what, what Blu-ray has provided the world? Another yeah. <laughs> opportunity to re-release every single goddamn Evil Dead film. I know. It's, it's a running joke at this point. It really there, is. There will be. At some point, they're just going to release a new one every month. Blu-ray. With, with a new commentary. Well, this is the 25th anniversary edition. This is on uh, Blu-ray. And the one thing about this that I will say... If you have the other 17,648 versions of this film on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray, is that there's a lot of special features. Uh, audio commentary with Sam Raimi is a couple of, uh, a bunch of featurettes, uh, examination of the way the film was edited, which is always kind of interesting. Uh, a thing here called The Road to Wadesboro. Yeah, because yeah. you're Wade. Uh, production videos taken at the time. Ar- there's, a, there's archival featurettes. There's a look at the effects. So... It definitely, um, you know... It's a funny movie. It's not a scary movie. None of these films are scary. They're all, they're all just good fun. But yeah. you know what? Just enough already. And by the way, does it look good on Blu-ray? You know, it's, uh, you know, whatever. It, was, it was, wasn't it shot on like uh, like half millimeter film? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you want to have it on Blu-ray, go nuts. But I don't really see the... Um, the unless you, you know what? If, if you want your Three Stooges level physical humor... In Blu-ray, then go for it. You know what movie I love, Mark? Star Wars. What movie I really love? Beginners. Beginners. And this uh, this also got very little traction. Focus didn't do much with this. I'm so disappointed in the way people market these films. Um, I got to tell you, Beginners is terrific. I, I hope this thing gets a little bit of awards love. Have you heard anybody else in the group talking about this? No, but what's interesting is that, you know, uh, that's it was written and directed by Mike Binder. Yeah. And his father came out. Mike he, Mills. I mean, Mike Mills. Yeah. Mike Mills's father came out when he was 75. Yeah. And it's, Mike Mills' mother had cancer. So there's definitely some it, autobiographical stuff. Very, you can see that. Very autobiographical. Yeah, it's uh, Ewan McGregor plays the lead character and Christopher Plummer in a terrific performance as his father who, after his mother dies, his father says, you know what, I'm gay. And that's one of the great moments in the movie, actually, because he, he sort of, in his mind, imagines or remembers his father saying that. But you see him say it like seven or eight different times, wearing different shirts and different, different inflections. And it, you can tell that he just can't wrap his head around it any, any way at all. Um, but it's lovely. There's a romance in here as well with a French woman played by Melanie Laurent, who I just adore. She's just great. We, we remember we had a little moment with Melanie Laurent doing the video uh, junket for, uh, for uh, Inglorious Bastards. She liked me. Yeah, I know she did. No, she did. 
Um, and by the way, nobody nobody knows this. If you ever go onto YouTube and you watch us doing the little the little shtick with Melanie Laurent, honestly, Harvey Weinstein is about a, a pace and a half off frame. He's just loitering in the in the room adjacent. He knows you. He knows your reputation. <laughs> Difficult questions. Oh yeah. Can't ask me any in three minutes. But anyway, uh, you know, this is a terrific film. Ewan McGregor really holds it together just beautifully. It's it's about his emotional journey in the face of all of this chaos in his life. And it's a terrific film, really terrific. Mike Mills does a, an audio commentary that is uh, is excellent, very personal, and really sharp. It's got a promo and a, and a featurette on it. I Even though I would normally say this is not the kind of movie you got to see on Blu-ray, um, I, it... it just works better and maybe it's because it draws you into the faces of the characters more effectively it's not a it's not a great you know cinematography piece but it um it's very artfully put together and uh, when you see it you'll see what i mean there's a you know the way that it's structured the way that it's uh, pieced together mills makes it very much kind of a personal tone poem and uh, so even though it's not a great visual piece it is a stylistic piece and uh, it really benefits nicely from the blu-ray i think so rock on go check that one out oh uh, wait a couple stinkers here I think. Uh, we have uh, Jessica Alba yeah. trying to get all serious in a movie called An, An, uh, An Invisible Sign. This uh-huh. is a uh, very much of a beautiful mind type of... What's uh, happened to her career? Well, h- how great was she anyway? She, was she really anything interesting anyway? Well, here she tries to get all serious. It's very much... She plays like this... Um, she's a woman who kind of... Uh, she... Whore, whores around, kills people. No, no. Her, sucks their blood. Her, her father was like this mathematician and he's been going insane so she retreats into like the world of numbers. Like no. everything's like a number. Yeah. And and it's just it's all just bathos and it's not realistic and it's just it's so it's it, her performance is just like quirky quirky and fidgety for the sake of being like all mannered and quirky and yeah. it's just not, I mean it's based on a novel which I'm sure is terrific but uh, the film itself is just it's just emotionally so on the nose it's just totally not worth it and it's on Blu-ray and there's no special features so why would you even rent it I at all I wouldn't. I know you wouldn't because you have no taste. Thank you. Uh, the Father of Invention has a terrific cast, including um, Kevin Spacey, Heather Graham. You know, can I say something about Heather Graham? Ageless. She kind of is, right? It's weird. I mean, she's got to be in her 40s, right? She is. She's like 42. So and it's she, weird because she still looks like she's 17. And I, don't she, know, I don't know how she does it. I really don't. Is she, wait, uh, can someone find out if she's married? She's not. She's not? No. But she's probably crazy, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it? We, we've been around long enough that you, you just do the math on that, right? I know. She's over 40. She's hot, right? Not married? Crazy. That's, yeah, just, but that's then, the equation. Uh, it's, that, it's algebra. It's just basic Hollywood algebra. That's what it is. That is true. Um, anyway, Kevin Spacey is actually quite funny. He plays this, uh, this totally arrogant, like he's like this infomercial producer, mm-hmm. this infomercial mogul, and uh, his whole empire collapses, and so now he's got to kind of put his life back together. And this is, of course, the most, the, the, the most exciting part of this film. Is this is where you finally get to see Kevin Spacey with a homeless man's beard? Because <laughs> he falls apart. He falls apart. Homeless man's that's, beard. That's great. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, so as long as he's in in it, it's totally fine. Otherwise, there's not much of a story going he on. It feels a little bit sketchy, huh? He looked kind of homeless when he got it, when he was playing the, uh, the 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 aging, balding, paunching Bobby Darren with a social conscience in Beyond the Sea. Yeah, that movie sucked. <laughs> and yet, it's kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Uh, really? Yeah, the, the dance sequences. But you, you, you realize that he, here's what this film actually did. Yeah. This film wound up indirectly ruining another film. Really? Father yes. Intervention? Yeah. No, no. Uh, 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 Bobby Darren. Beyond the Sea. Oh. Yes, because... Be, we, shift, beyond, we shifted gears. I'm yes. sorry. I didn't keep up with that. How, how dare you? Because in Beyond the Sea, Bobby Darren's uh, love interest is played by Kate Bosworth. Right. And when Brian Singer was casting Superman and had landed on Kevin Spacey for oh, Lex Luthor, right. Kevin Spacey said, I have a great Lois Lane. Kate Bosworth oh, is awesome. I just work with her in Beyond the Sea. She's great. You know what? Worst Lois ever. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Uh, Rio Sex Comedy direct. <clears throat> excuse me. Rio Sex Comedy directed by Jonathan Nosseter. Uh Kind of a little bit of a quirky festival favorite, uh, but not nothing great. Decent cast though, so uh, go give it a give it a look. See if you feel inclined. If these people uh, interest you, Charlotte Rampling always worth a look. Bill Pullman hasn't been around for a while, but he's great. Irene Jacob, one of my favorites. I interviewed her. You know that she's delightful. Love Irene Jacob. In the, uh, uh, she, you know, in the uh, in the Kieslowski film, she was delicious. Oh, f- 
And now she's in her 40s, too. I know. And then uh, Fisher Stevens and uh, Jerome Kircher are kind of on the second tier here, even though Fisher Stevens becoming kind of a little mini mogul of of late in the last few years. You know, he was a producer on In the Bedroom. But, uh, no, you know what this is? It all takes place in Rio de Janeiro, and it's uh, it's just kind of a, a French farce more than anything. Um, great cast, This, the, but the whole thing is kind of, you know, a little bit far-fetched. Bill Pullman plays a, a, a United States ambassador, and um, it all kind of spirals into madness after that. And it's okay. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing revolutionary here that you haven't seen in other films done probably better. But it's cute. It passes the time. If you want to see a, you know, a good cast in a uh, rather, you know, somewhat engaging farce in a, in a nice location like Rio de Janeiro, check it out. Rio sex comedy. You know, uh, here's a bit of a recommendation. A movie called Putty Hill. Putty Hill came out in 2010, and it's an interesting film. It's, um, I actually like this film, and I didn't think I would. I was surprised. This is a two-disc set, actually, and uh, it's about... It takes place in this uh, kind of rundown wooded suburb of Baltimore, and this kid named Corey dies of an overdose, and you sort of meet all the people around him and how the fact that, you know, uh, nobody really liked this kid. This kid wouldn't really know anything about him, but it's all about kind of using that death as an entry into this little town. So it's really well done. It reminds me a little bit of, um, uh, well, what's his name? Uh, the one who does the Michelle Williams films, uh, the woman, the director. Uh, uh, oh, the, the uh, one with the dog. Yes. Uh, yeah. Who directed um, that dog, woman? Don't stop the recording, Wade. I'm figuring uh, this out. It's, it's like uh, a Pat and Mike, Michelle Hillary and Mark, <laughs> Frank and Frank and. Wait, Stif- don't stop Frank the recording. Hang on. No, I'm actually thinking more of the director than anything else. Yeah, I'm, but, thinking, of, um, I'm thinking of the title. It was like uh, it's, uh, Max and Beauregard. <laughs> uh, Hill- <laughs> Max and Beauregard. What the hell is that? I don't know. Wendy like and Lucy. That's it, Wendy and Lucy. It reminds me of the films of Kelly Rucker and Max and Beauregard. What the hell was that? I don't Max know. and Beauregard? <laughs> I'm thinking of dog names, you know. <laughs> Whose dog is named Beauregard? I don't know. If I had a dog, I'd name him Beauregard. Oh, Jesus H. Christ. All right. Anyway, Putty Hill's a good film. It's kind of an overlooked movie. Check it out. Cool. Uh, you know, a completely offbeat, weird, quirky 1978 film from Mars is Despair. And this is out on Blu-ray. Olive Films released the DVD some months ago. And um, this really, really good version. I got to tell you, I, uh, seeing it on, on DVD was like, okay, it's fine. It looks good. You know, the restoration's great. The restoration really shines on Blu-ray. You really realize how much work they put into this. It's very, very good. Uh, it comes in this with a, uh, a uh, documentary making of featurette deal. It's actually more than a featurette. It's rather long. It's, you know, a decent size. But anyway, the, uh, the movie itself is over two hours. So between the movie and the documentary, you've got a good three hours of material on here. Yeah, but it, look at this. It was, it was, it, the, it's based on a book by, by, by Nabokov. By Nabokov. Adapted, adapted by Tom, by Tom Stoppard. Stoppard. And directed, directed by, by Fassbender. Yeah, so uh, it, there's some serious pedigree going on here. Yeah, and then, of course, you've got Dirk Bogard in the lead. Uh, the thing is a little bit 70s freaky. That's why it's kind of been buried, because it dates a little bit. It's uh, it's about a guy who's basically losing his mind. And we have a lot of those from that era. You know, if you go all the way back to Polanski's Repulsion, and there's a lot of stuff of, you know, people going crazy or going on drug trips, and everything gets freaky. But um, this is done really, really, really well. And uh, I think it dates, uh, you know, despite all of the kind of kitschy Surroundings, I think, as a movie, as a dramatic piece, it dates really well, and the Blu-ray is great. So, if you want to see a long-lost Fassbender film, and Andy Klein swears by this, he saw this when it was released. So now you're just aging Andy. I'm aging Andy, absolutely. Better to age Andy than age myself. And uh, before we move into other things, this week's pick of the week, as far as I'm concerned, is the Blu-ray of My Fair Lady. Now. Uh, Really, all they did here was take the current DVD special edition release of My Fair Lady and just poured everything over. So it's not like they said, they, oh, we've got the Blu-ray, let's just really amp it up like they did with Ben-Hur and like they did with uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, no, with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. No, they didn't, uh, they didn't give it the royal treatment, which I wish they would have. Um, it would have been, it would have been deserving, and it would have been, would have sold beautifully for the uh, holidays. But they didn't. That being said, terrific Blu-ray, looks gorgeous. It's a great transfer. Great All transfer. the costumes and the sets look great, and the well, colors really pop. Looks good. Uh, you know what? It's it's the transfer is uh, a credit to the incredible restoration by Robert Harris and James Katz. Robert Harris, I am proud to say, is a very good friend of mine, and uh, I know a lot about the work that he went through on this, and it was bravo. You know, he and Jim did a sensational job. This is one of the great 70mm films of all time, and it belongs on Blu-ray. You just can't get any better. Uh, excellent, excellent uh, extras on here. You know, the old, the original featurettes and uh, all kinds of galleries and a great commentary. Uh, it, you got to check it out. It's terrific. Yep, My Fair Lady. 
All right, Mark. We have uh, we have a couple of audio listener mail submissions. We do. Yes, we do. You didn't tell me that. That's because I'm just full of surprises. I'd like to keep you sharp. I'd like to keep you on your toes. Uh, no, so yes, you can always email these to us at gods at digigods.com. Send it in the form of an audio question if you want it to be cut into the show. Or, uh, you know, if you're shy and bashful, you can always send us just a regular email and we'll read it. So anyway, uh, without wasting any further time, here is our first question by audio. Dear Wade and Mark, um, my name's Rhys. I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I'd just like to start off by thanking you both for supplying years and years worth of highly educational and humorous banter about films. I started listening to the show when I was you know, around 16, and I'm nearly 20 now, so you know, I figure I'm a bit of a fan of it. But I do have a question for you too, though, which is, do you guys have any films that you sort of have fond memories of watching with a bunch of mates, having a bit of a piss-up at home? Like On a number of occasions, Wade has made comments that he doesn't get movies like Harold and Kumar or <clears throat> Van Wilder, but... I found that some of those films are my absolute favourites, purely for the memories I've had watching them while getting pretty pissed. So I was just curious if um, either of you two have any stories or memories you'd like to share, you know, watching those sort of films and having a bit of fun, and if you can make any recommendations for, m- for me and my mates. Anyway, um, again, I'd just like to thank you both for, you know, everything you've done over the last couple of years, and I hope you keep going. Cheers, mates. Bye. Yeah, you know what? Uh, gosh, you know what? I, I just cannot listen to anyone uh, from Australia speak without wanting to go there on vacation. It just, <laughs> uh, seriously, I like. I, I hear Australians talk. I, even, even like, anytime I he- see Hugh Jackman or anybody on a, on a talk show, and I just think I have got to go to Melbourne or Sydney or Perth. I just, I just want to go. It sounds like you're such a fun place. I, you know, I would do it. The to- accent just I, kills me. It's I, so fun. I would do it tomorrow if the flight wasn't sixteen hours. That's what makes it worth it. It's like the edge of the world. No, but then, like, you're on a plane for 16 hours. What if it crashes? Yeah, but then it's you like, see kangaroos. If you're in a car, if you're in a car and something goes wrong with the car, you can pull over to the side of the road. Yeah. If you're in a plane and something goes wrong, you cannot right. pull over to the side of the road. And you're on the plane for. Now, I've, I've been to Japan, I've been all around, but I'm just saying that. It's yeah. something about Australia, like it just it gets me all edgy. In answer to the question, you know what? Yes, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. This is my this is my get together with my buddies and just love this movie, even though we know it's a stupid film, but we just have the most fun in the world with it. Uh, Strange Brew. I, I, I'm sure I've said that on this show before, but uh, Strange Brew just absolutely kills me. I quote it all the time. Whenever I get together with some of my buddies, we we all quote back back go back to the asylum. You know, it's just got tons of and um, that time code is very very hard to fake. There are so many great lines. I'm going to say something, Wade, which I've said before publicly. Strange Brew, dud. I love it. Absolutely love it. Strange Brew is that film for me, i got to confess. Well, I would probably say uh, that film for me. You know what? I'll name two. And by the way, we're a little bit older yeah. than, than the... Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Sure, sh- exactly. We'll leave it at that. So I will say uh, Animal House. That's a good one. I'll pretty much say almost any like early 80s Bill Murray comedy. Stripes... Oh, Caddyshack, Stripes for sure. Stripes, Caddyshack, and then uh, maybe Fletch. Uh, definitely Animal House, Revenge of the Nerds. I would say Animal House, Revenge of the Nerds, and any Bill Murray comedy from Re- that era. Revenge, I, I'm, I'd go with most of those. And you know what? I would also throw in uh, Beavis and Butthead to America, which is a more recent film, but I absolutely adore it and uh, can't get enough of those guys. We love Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> the fact that they're on TV again makes me so happy. It's the best. It's just it's, it's blissful stupidity. All right. Thank you, Rafe. We, that was a great question. We have one more. Good afternoon, DigiGods. My name is Frank Lopes. I'm from Connecticut. And I have to say, before I ask my question... It's a real thrill to get a chance to talk to you guys today. On to my question, I guess. Uh, this question is goes back to your review a couple weeks ago about the Citizen Kane Blu-ray. During your interview, you were discussing the process of the Blu-ray conversion process and that, I can't recall the company who released the Blu-ray, but you talked about how the cleaning out process had altered the original movie to a degree that you felt impacted the narrative in some way most specifically the scene uh the beginning scene the reporter scene um uh, my question is uh it revolves around a discussion i was having with a friend of mine debate regarding that uh conversion uh, we were questioning how the conversion process when turning this uh, original movie into the Blu-ray, the digital format, that uh, although it's high def, that digital format should reflect quite accurately uh, the original picture as it was filmed 
by Orson Welles. And uh, it should have brought to brought the quality, the clarity of that video to his vision as much as possible. Um, the question was, and the argument was, maintained that if that was true, uh, was there something done to alter that? And how would you guys uh, know that? Would you, and did you have perhaps um, a chance to see the original print of the uh, that uh, original movie? Um, and, uh, and in some ways, uh, we had the, the argument that maybe perhaps the original vision did have and was maintained by that digital um, transformation process. And that perhaps, um, were we actually getting what he originally envisioned? That we were finally seeing that format uh, as it should have been um, displayed or run or projected uh, by Orson Welles when it was originally released and that now we're finally seeing that original vision um, or is it and have you any particular uh, insight into uh, that um, original viewing that maybe you'd like we said before maybe you had seen the original print we're just curious how you came to that conclusion Excellent question from Frank Lopes. Uh, here is the quick answer to that, uh, as quick as we can make it. Um, when you shoot a film, you, you don't all—it's not perfectly shot the way that you eventually want it to be. For example, you oftentimes have to do color timing and various corrective uh, processes. It used to be chemical, now it's digital, but it, you, you you do have to change the shading and the color and to kind of push it, push and pull it, and get it to where you want it to be. So the raw negative does not necessarily reflect the way the film is eventually going to be. For example, if you're shooting a regular film, sometimes you're going to, you know, the sun moves while you're shooting it and takes earlier in the day are going to look more red and takes later in the day are going to look more blue or vice versa. So they have to make all of that match in the, eventually. I, I have seen Citizen Kane in, the, uh, in a nitrate print that was part of the UCLA Film Archive, which does accurately reflect uh, what Wells wanted. Most scholars know this. A lot of movies have had problems with this in their releases. Lawrence of Arabia has been all over the map in terms of its color timing and its shading and, and all of that. You know, Robert Harris has had to, uh, who we mentioned earlier, uh, has, he has had to be involved in finally getting that to look the way it needs to look. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of other films out there, Once Upon a Time in the West. There's a lot of controversy about whether or not that has been properly color timed for video, so... It is really a, a, a bit of film technology or film process that people don't necessarily know a lot about, which is color timing. Yeah. And now, of course, it's all digital. I mean, when you, so, you know, it's funny because now that color timing has gone digital, yeah. when you look at a film and when you look at cinematography, some people have a problem differentiating between how the film was shot by the cinematographer on location or on set versus how much better he can make it look yeah. digitally through timing yeah. in post and whether that whether that process gives an artificial it sort of artificially gooses uh, what was done on set true although you know the, the thing that is really relevant here is that if they're screwing this up they're not using proper reference materials they're not you know that here you, you have the raw materials from Citizen Kane you're digitizing it for high def you should be religiously checking it against some kind of a really clean source print to make sure that what you are digitizing and what you're cleaning up looks exactly like that print. And that apparently is a process that is not a high priority in a lot of cases. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's something about the filmmaker's intent where if the filmmaker's intent is always paramount. Yeah. Uh, and something like Citizen Kane where there's been so much written about it and Orson Welles has talked about it so much and there's been so many DVD and whatnot releases of it, we pretty much know at this point, what Orson Welles' intent was. Yeah, absolutely. So if a film, when it's getting its 2K or 4K or someday 8K, whatever it is, restoration, you know, they know how bright or dark or gray every scene, every shot in that film should be. There's just too much reference material to go back to. Yep. So if they're making a mistake, then that's obviously something that is really just tragic. Uh, we're going to uh, get into some documentaries here. Uh, this one is just utterly grueling. It's a two-disc special edition of Enemies of the People, which is by Rob Lemkin and Tet Sambat. Uh, Tet Sambat is the really the, the crucial figure here because this is a very, very personal film 
on his part uh, because his family was slaughtered by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And uh, this is one of the most grueling films I have ever seen about the uh, the Khmer Rouge, the killing fields, that entire horrible, horrible ordeal in Cambodian history. Um, not easy to watch, but absolutely crucial history because it personalizes it, which is uh, a step beyond what most of the uh, Khmer Rouge and uh, killing field documentaries have uh, have done. So this is really first rate. But be prepared; it is uh, it's a meat grinder, and uh, it's two discs. There's tons of stuff here. Great for institutions. Good for education. Uh, what's not good for education or institutions, but I did like it a lot, is The People versus George Lucas. Now, this is a documentary about, uh, not only about, really, no, it's not about Star Wars, it's really about how the culture has at first embraced Star Wars, and the fans completely embraced it, and then slowly over time, they started to turn on George Lucas as he did the restorations, and of course the prequel films, which are so terrible, and it's really about these fans who have given up their entire childhood to love Star Wars, slowly seeing that love chipped away by the restorations and the horrible prequels. And uh, I think this film is just terrific. It's really well edited. He works in the uh, director, uh, Alexander Philippe. He uh, works in a lot of fan films. He works in a lot of uh, interview bites from scholars and fans and whatnot. And really, this movie, is, it's, it's like a cri de care, uh, 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 Wade. It's, totally. It's a cri de care. Okay. It's a cry of the heart. I, I, yeah, I understood, from, your, from I understood jilting, your mangled French. From How do you say it? Cri de coeur. Cri de coeur. Yeah. From jilted Star Wars yeah, fans. But uh, I like this film a lot. Uh, special features include a commentary. Um, it could have used more of those fan films. I think those fan, fan films are great. I wish they would have put even more fan films on this uh, DVD. But uh, what are you going to do? I like the film a lot. The People vs. George Lucas. Uh, the Last Mountain is from Docurama, and it's uh, this is a pretty good doc. It there's a lot of these kind of you know eco docs that capture some uh, remote uh, campaign to save something or other, you know, birds and estuaries and whatnot. But this one is interesting because it takes place in West Virginia, which we always associate as being a, an intensely coal-driven economy, and yet there's a case here where they, they the community rallies to prevent a coal company from uh, digging yet another mine in, in a mountain that is actually a beautiful little hill. And uh, it's really fascinating. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. gets in, the, uh, gets in on the act, and um, it, uh, you know, even though there is definitely a point of view here, an ecological point of view, um, it asks a lot of interesting questions that go beyond the environmental movement. So this is a really interesting film. Uh, very, very well done. The Last Mountain, directed by Bill Haney. Also very good is uh, Making Warhorse. Now, Warhorse is, of course, uh, the Steven Spielberg uh, film that is his big Oscar bait for the year. But uh, Which I'm uh, seeing next week, I which, believe. Which uh, I'm seeing next week, too. Yeah. But also, uh, obviously, it's uh, based on a stage play, which, of course, is uh, based on a children's novel. So it's gone full circle. Children's and the sta- novel, And the horse, the, the, all the horses, in fact, in the stage play, they're all puppets. And I just talked to a friend today, actually, who just got back from New York and saw Warhorse on stage. And uh, it was interesting comparing this film to his account of seeing it live. And it's fascinating because really, uh, you've got to see this, Making Warhorse, because everything about the play is about the puppeteering. It's really amazing the, the, what they do with the horses and, and how they sort of own the, the puppeteers. It's great. Well, that's, that's what this uh, DVD is all about. It's all yep. about the, the, uh, the making of the show. You know, this thing was done through the National Theater, and there was a, there's these two directors... Um, David Bickerstaff and Phil Grabsky, they were there for the whole process, and they did a great job sort of letting you know how behind the scenes in the rehearsal room, and there's interviews and, uh, with, all the, the, uh, with all the writers and the actors and whatnot, and the technical team, bringing Warhorse to life. This, of course, is coming out you know, just in time for the uh, Spielberg film. So making Warhorse, if, uh, if you've seen the show and have any interest in the movie, you may want to see uh, from whence it came. It came from the boards. Yeah. It came from the boards way. Children's novel to Broadway. Pretty awesome. To the movie theaters. Uh, C-Rex, Journey to a Prehistoric World in 3D, is an IMAX 3D film that is now on Blu-ray 3D. And uh, really, it's just kind of a Jurassic Park type thing where you, they, they transport you back in time to, you know, dinosaurs underwater. That's pretty much it. Uh, pretty cool, actually. Uh, the, the, you know, e- e- just the whole concept of it is fairly juvenile but it's you know the animation is pretty cool the 3d i find still pointless but uh what i always enjoy with these imax 3d releases is that they have this very iconic little simple equation to watch this movie in 3d you need a full hd 3d tv plus compatible 3d glasses plus blu-ray 3d player plus high-speed hdmi cable 
Um, you know what? I just don't know that <laughs> there, are, there are still yet enough people who, uh, who care. But there it is. Also plays in 2D on any Blu-ray player. Uh, Wade, uh, to bring it down just a little bit, an excellent, excellent documentary, although hardly um, easy watching, is this uh, Bill Moyers series, On Our Own Terms. This is a great documentary where he goes around and talks to terminally ill patients and discusses with them how they plan on living what's left of their lives, how they plan on getting ready for death. You know, you get, um, there was one brave, this doctor, he, he has cancer, and he's not going to treat it. He knows he's going to die from cancer, and he's not going to get chemo because he's heard too many stories about how horrible it is, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to prolong his life for whatever, a few months, and it's going to be just pain-filled months anyway. And he talks to you know hospice workers who make sure that the terminally ill are, are cared for, and it's not easy watching, but it's just it's just great stuff. And Bill Morris is so he's very, he's very gentle, he's very insightful, he's very knowledgeable, and it's great stuff. I mean, again, it's not easy uh, watching, but it's good stuff. It includes a uh, sixteen-page viewer guide. Uh, biography of Bill Moyers, but uh, the DVD on our own terms is really moving. It's good stuff. Good for institutions. Mark, <laughs> yes. Roadhog, Mr. Magoo, Mr. Magoo, the television, Mr. Magoo, the television collection, nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy seven. Um, this is great, absolutely terrific. This is uh, all. This is from the Shout Factory people. We freaking love Shout Factory. Uh, this is everything Mr. Magoo from those uh, crucial 17 years. And remember, Mr. Magoo has, you know, there, there have been other releases. He's been around since 1949. This is not comprehensive Magoo. This is 31 hours of 60s and 70s era Magoo. And includes the Mr. Magoo show, The Famous Adventures of Mr. Magoo, What's New Mr. Magoo, and the uh, TV special Uncle Sam Magoo. Uh, it, 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 look, it, this is just a classic American uh, cartoon. Um, they, who would think to do this today? To do a character, a cartoon character, who is old and blind. Well, you can't do it today because it, it doesn't sell cereal or toys. See? That's the thing. It's just that it's, it comes from an era and it would never be replicated. You'd have to have everything would have to be cute and marketable and, uh, oh, dear, we can't have him be short-sighted because that will offend somebody. Um, it's, it's a bummer, and, but this and, is terrific. And yet somehow, as a society, we yeah. survived I know, right. Mr. Magoo on television. Somehow right. we made that happen. Just great. There's commentaries on here with a lot of animation historians and a nice little featurette. So really terrific. Any Mr. Magoo fan has just got to be just going nuts for this. This is great. Good Christmas gift. Uh, Wade, uh, let's do some animated stuff uh, here. We got um, two from the Avengers. This is from uh, the good folks at uh, Marvel. This is uh, the Avengers Volume 3, the Avengers Volume 4. Volume 3 contains Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, and the Hulk. And um, Volume 4 contains, oh, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, and the Hulk. Wow, how about they, that? They run around and do hulky stuff. You know what? I, I don't like this sort of animation. It's like it's very sort of uh, angular and squared off, and it's really not my favorite animation style. But um, the show's kind of a hit. So there's uh, six episodes on uh, Volume 3, and there's seven episodes on Volume 4. So if you like this kind of stuff, uh, go for it. It is The Avengers, Volume 3, and Volume 4. Somehow the Miramax Library wound up with these Hugo films. Uh, Hugo, they're animated and decently animated, cute, fine, adequate. Um, they come from Per Holst Films, and that's a, a Norwegian company. So, it, but you know, regardless, I it's you know easily he's a little jungle critter and he's cute and. Um, you know, you root for him. There you go. The two movies here is Go Hugo Go and Hugo the Movie Star. I these have these have not become kind of uh, as massively successful as I think Miramax may have originally hoped. They haven't really franchised in any way, but it's fine. It, you know, it's it's not offensive, and kids will probably groove to it. My favorite is a Hugo, the reality star who had the sham wedding. Oh yeah, that's Mike. Because you know Hugo, Hugo really. Is. Anyway, uh, all right. Here's some uh, kid stuff, which we uh, obviously we can't really talk all that much about because um, we don't have kids, um, and I'm not going to sit here and watch all this crap. I'll just let you know that it's around. This is um, uh, Scout and Friends Phonics Farm from the uh, good folks at Leapfrog. This is all about uh, learning how to you know 
Learning your ABCs, Wade. Yeah. Come and on, we, learn your ABCs. And we got more from LeapFrog. We got a three DVD learning collection. They've got a few of these. This includes The Amazing Alphabet Amusement Park, uh, Learn to Read at the Storybook Factory, and Numbers Ahoy. I just love that, Numbers Ahoy. It's kind of funny. Uh, Starlight, Star Bright, and, the season, and Seasons of Adventure are two uh, public television shows that are... Um, uh, now on DVD, this um, seasons of adventure includes uh, what's he uh, eight episodes of this of chirp and quack, chirp and quack's a robin and a duck wave. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's very rudimentary um, animation, and uh, the other one, Starlight Star Bright, um, is from uh, also uh, is chirp and quack. As you can tell, I haven't watched these <laughs> because uh, am I really going to watch this? Wait, uh, no, thank you. Uh, brats. I hate the brats. I, I, they, they, they freak me out. It's like if I had a daughter, there's no way I'd let her near these things because they're, uh, you know what, can I, can I say this on our show? Because this is kind of a show for adults. I think the brats are kind of whorish. I'm gonna they say really that. are. But I guess that's why they're popular. Uh, this is the Bratz 3 movie collection, which includes fashion bracelets. Heaven help us. You know those little rubbery things that all the, all the kids wear? Well, all the girl kids. You know Mattel sued the guy who created Bratz. I know they did. Uh, Genie Magic, Rock Angels with a Z, and uh, Starin' and Stylin'. I, you know what? I Look, it's out there. If you have a daughter and you don't care, if you have a son and you don't care, uh, go ahead. Uh, I dare you. I just dare you, but I don't, I don't get it. I don't like them as toys. I don't really like them as, uh, as, as animated movie stars. Uh, the Littlest Angel is a uh, children's classic, as you know, and here it's given um, kind of a computer-animated 3D treatment in a new DVD called The Littlest Angel. This one's about, uh, obviously, you know what it's about. It's, uh, this kid goes to heaven before he's supposed to, and he's sent back to earth to, um, to get a gift for the baby Jesus. Now, here's the thing. If the baby Jesus really wants a gift, why would you send this kid? Why don't you send, like, you know, know. Sherlock Holmes or somebody or I someone know. who really lived? I know. It makes no sense. I don't really uh, Anyway, um, yeah, I, you're better off with a picture book. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. Uh, volume three of Tom and Jerry's Fur Flying Adventures is more of the same. Uh, not the best Tom and Jerry stuff, but it's perfectly fine. So, uh, you know, I, I, I almost at this point feel like people are best. Just wait until somebody comes out with a big giant box set of all these Fur Flying Adventures because they, they're just kind of trickling out too slow. Uh, there's a few good shorts on here. Um, a Life Less Guarded is, is good. Um, uh, Shutterbugged Cat is good. Snow Mouse is good. And uh, Spook House Mouse is good. Um, but, you know, there's nothing on here that I would consider really uh, kind of legendary, legendary Tom and Jerry. Um, moving along, I'm not a big fan of the Wild Thornberries, but this is the Wild Thornberry Season 2, a two-disc set on DVD. Animation um, creeps me out. I, you know, the animation is uh, is very creepy. I do like the voice cast, which includes Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, so you can't, you can't beat that. But uh, uh, this show, uh, I just, it's just a strange show to me. But you know what? If you love uh, jungles and rainforest, uh, go for it. I am guilty that I have made fun of Elmo so much on this show, and uh, I am I am now deeply moved by Elmo. And I'm not being facetious. Uh, you know, there's a documentary out that I, I saw for radio a few weeks ago, uh, Becoming Elmo, a, a, a puppeteer's journey, which is all about the guy who is the voice of Elmo, who is the puppeteer who controls Elmo. And I got to tell you, I, I had no idea that Elmo was a middle-aged black man. It, it's it's the strangest thing seeing that voice. I always thought it was like a woman or a girl or something. I had no idea that voice came out of a a rather large middle aged black man from uh, uh, from uh, 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 John John Waters' hometown, Baltimore. Baltimore. Thank you. You know, I actually thought that Elmo was an actual creature. I didn't realize it was a person. no. It's amazing, and the guy's story, his life story, is so incredible. It is such the American dream. Um, because Elmo was a pre-existing Muppet character that they couldn't figure out what to do with. He was kind of a minor Sesame Street character, and then he came in and gave it a whole new voice and a persona, and, you know, kids erupted in support, and Elmo has now become the most popular Sesame Street character ever. This is called Bye Bye Pacifier, Big Kid Stories with Elmo, and you know what? I would have made fun of this about three weeks ago, but I find it just really awesome now. Elmo and his pacifier is really kind of cool and touching. Uh, Wade, the only one of these uh, kids' discs I can really recommend is uh, A Child's Garden of Poetry. Now, this is uh, from HBO Family, and here you get a lot of classic uh, poetry. Carl Sandburg, Emily Dickinson, E.E. E. Cummings, um, Robert Frost, all read by various and sundry celebrities like Claire Danes, Carrie Fisher, 
Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jeffrey Wright, Julian Moore. So really, it's 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 great actors reading great poetry, and it's a it's a really terrific uh, introduction to poetry for um, for kids. A Child's Garden of Poetry. This one I like. This is good stuff. Along with My Fair Lady, we are getting into foreign films now. Along with My Fair Lady, my pick of the week is uh, the new Blu-ray Criterion release of Fanny and Alexander. Now, this isn't everybody's cup of tea. Fanny and Alexander is kind of like the last really kind of big, splashy Ingmar Bergman film. And splashy for Bergman means, you know, it's still intense and angst-ridden. But this film is so accomplished and so magnificent. And uh, you get three discs here which contain the television version, the theatrical version, and then tons and tons and tons of extras. Uh, This is wonderful. Absolutely fantastic. The television version, mind you, is somewhere in the order of about uh, five hours long. It is uh, is intense. It is fascinating. It is very, very compelling. But it's not for everybody. The three-hour version that was released in the United States is a little brisker but not quite as deep. Uh, both of them are masterpieces. I'm not going to tell you anything else. They're absolutely genius. And also included here among the extras is the uh, two-hour making-of documentary, which is riveting. Ingmar Bergman fans will rejoice at this. The uh, Sven Nykvist cinematography was made for Blu-ray. They just gave this a workover that you will not believe. If you do not have a state of the art television, you need to go get yourself a state of the art television, uh, calibrate that thing, get it perfectly right spot on, and then you watch this and you will just you will see everything that television can do. The colors, the shading, magnificent. Pure heaven. Wade, uh, speaking of pure heaven. Yes. I don't know. Uh, we have a DVD and a uh, Blu-ray from Kino. Now, Metropolis... The uh, Fritz we, Lang 1927 classic yes, was we, released on uh, the rest restored version. Was released some months ago, yes. Yes, and I'm a huge, huge fan of it. I saw it projected in New York, and it was unbelievably great, and the Blu-ray is fantastic. Now, as some of you may not know, uh, in 1984, Metropolis oh, yeah. was re-released. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't just re-released, Wade. It was... Well, first of all, it was, it was cut down enormously. Yes, it was cut down. But also... And, and then it was tinted intermittently, you know, like a little red tint and blue tint and orange tint and gold tint. It was given all these different tints throughout. But yet, Wade, what is the most important uh, change, update, in the 1984 version of Metropolis? Well, we have to go back in 1984, and we have to remember that this was an era when Giorgio Moroder was king of movie music. There's Giorgio Moroder music all over the place, kind of going all the way back to things like Midnight Express when he won an Oscar for that really cool score that is now incredibly dated but still cool. He did stuff for Scarface. He did the score for Scarface. He did uh, Flashdance, Flash Dance, all the songs in Flashdance, the major songs in Flashdance. I mean, he was the man. It was this rockin' kind of kicking disco digitally sound, and somebody had the bright idea of saying, hey, why don't we take Giorgio Moroder and take an old movie like Metropolis and spruce it up by letting him just slap a bunch of songs on it. And so instead of having a classic silent film score here, you have a Giorgio Moroder basically rock song score. Yes, Wade. What they did is they took an hour out of the film, added a Giorgio Moroder score with songs by Pat Benatar, Billy Squire, and Adam <laughs> Ant, and then re-released Metropolis. And you know what? It, was, it, it, it made a big splash in 1984. This it is a did. big deal. It did. I mean, look, it's not, it's not Fritz Lang's Metropolis. It was a weird little experiment, and it, the movie itself doesn't make any sense in this version. Um, but it's like a it's like a giant music video, and uh, I, I don't know if Fritz Lang would turn in his grave or not. But it's okay, it's fine. I I, I enjoy watching it, but if I want to really watch Metropolis, I'm going to watch the, uh, the the more recent restoration, which is gorgeous. Now, which is if, amazing. if they wanted to make the Giorgio Moroder version an extra, almost like Magnificent Ambersons is sure. an extra on the sure. Citizen Kane Blu-ray, sure. yeah. if they wanted to make this one an extra on the Metropolis restoration Blu-ray, yep. then it would be like uh, just. Over the moon, great. I, I, but I will say, I mean, they did a nice job with the with the transfer. The the, the tints look really cool. It's uh, it doesn't look shabby at all, and the music is great. I mean, in Blu-ray, the only reason you're watching this on Blu-ray is because you're getting the the songs just in kick and lossless, and that's pretty great. Good party stuff. Speaking of pretty great, Wade, uh, you're a fan of uh, The Departed, aren't you? Not really. Neither am I. I, I, I prefer Infernal Affairs. Yes, and uh, Infernal Affairs is out on Blu-ray, Wade. Now this is we just have. The original Infernal Affairs, there was three there were, of them. There were three of them. It's a trilogy, and, and you almost need the trilogy. I'm a little annoyed that they don't, they're not releasing the trilogy, because I have an import with all three films, and they should have all three films in a Blu-ray trilogy. I don't know why they're not doing that. Because this is the only one that has any... You know why? Because this is the only f- film in the series where they could say, 
the motion picture that inspired The Departed right on the top of the box. Yeah, and that'll get it, people checking it out. On, in in Fertile Affairs 2 and 3, which are very good, uh, you can't really say that. This is pure marketing play yeah. is what it is. You need the others. But uh, the film looks great. It's a terrific film. It's better than, better than the Scorsese film. Uh, so much more surprising and, believe it or not, even stylish. Oh, it's and so good. it's great. There's some special features here, but you've seen these on other uh, iterations of the DVD and the Blu-ray. There's a making of, there's a behind-the-scenes look at it, there's an alternate ending, which is not as good as the ending that they used. But uh, Infernal Affairs is a terrific, terrific film. I would see that and then, Any day. And then watch The Departed and you'll realize that Infernal Affairs is better. Fascinating, right? A Best Picture winner that's uh, not as good as the film it was based on. Uh, three by Teo, and that's Teo spelled T-H-E-O. This is the uh, Teo Van Gogh collection, uh, Blind Date, Interview, and 1-900. If you don't know who Teo Van Gogh was, you need to. Teo Van Gogh was a, uh, a, very, a very, very successful Dutch filmmaker, uh, descended from Vincent Van Gogh, actually, and uh, he died. One might say one of the first major, major casualties of the uh, War on Terror uh, because he was working with uh, a, a then-legislator in the Dutch parliament named Ayan Hirsi Ali, a Somali woman who has since gone on to write a number of uh, very successful books, an extraordinary woman. They were working together on a film about the uh, abuse of women in uh, Muslim countries. And a, uh, a fanatic who did not like the idea of that uh, jumped out in the middle of the street while Van Gogh was riding his bicycle and stabbed him to death in plain view and in public. Um, that should not necessarily make you want to see his movies, just to sort of underscore the kind of fearless filmmaker he was. These three films are all very, very good. Um, one of them, Blind Date, was remade uh, as a Stanley Tucci film in 2007, the same year that uh, the other film, Interview, was remade uh, by Steve Buscemi in two thousand, you know, again in two thousand seven. So two of these are have been redone as American films, but not nearly as good. Uh, they they really, really are fascinating movies they should be seen in their original versions and bravo to uh, e1 for bringing all of them out 1900 by the way we shouldn't let go it's uh it's all about you know anonymous phone sex and that's you know still is <laughs> that is it's almost prescient uh more important now than it was at the time yes yeah, a tragic story teo definitely yeah uh going back in time to about 19 what is this 1972 Four. Yep. yep. This is uh, going places. The um, the terrific, offensive, strange, hilarious, sad Bertrand uh, Blier film. Bertrand Blier film. This is uh, Gerard Depardieu and um, Patrick Dewaire. Uh, and uh, they play these two kids in their twenties, and basically they're just they're just they go on a bike. They they're amoral. They don't care who they sleep with. They don't care who they mess around with. They don't care. And, and, th- and Miu Miu is delicious. And Miu Miu is delicious. And so is Isabelle Huppert and Jeanne Moreau. And Jeanne Moreau, show too. Up in this. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. At the, I know you hate it when I bring up Colcoa, but at Colcoa this last year, I moderated an evening with uh, uh, Bertrand Blier, who is lovely, by the way, charming, funny, hysterical man. And uh, we talked a little bit about this. And uh, all of his stories of working with Depardieu are so intriguing because... Uh, it's almost like his relationship with, you know, Depardieu has worked with him more than almost any other director. And it's almost as if Depardieu is his De Niro to, you know, is to him as De Niro was to Scorsese. No, no, no. As DiCaprio is to Scorsese. Oh, don't right? even go there. Don't even go there. Or, or DiCaprio is now to, to Clint Eastwood. Um, no, it's really, it's really fascinating. Depardieu is, um, when you hear him talk about it, you realize just what a gifted actor he is. Because Depardieu doesn't need to, he, he's got it. He nails it. He knows it. He almost doesn't even need direction. It would it would be like let me let me Gerard could I talk to you no no I got it I know and he nails it you know it's a it's a director's dream and I think he's I think you see that in this film and I'm I'm thrilled that it's out on Blu-ray thank it you is. Kino yep it's a, it's you know what it, 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 I I think younger audiences would like this because these two characters are so oh, totally. a, they're so amoral they're just hilariously amoral they just don't care the the women they harass doesn't matter to them you know Mark I, I, I I'm going to take us out on this I think we could almost rename this film Occupy the French countryside. 